0: a fun morning. (laughs) So you can say this morning that you were led in worship by children, by some great musicians and vocalists, and by a ukulele, which uh, I'm pretty sure is the first time that I can say that anyway, uh, which is cool. Uh, Long overdue. I thought that was pretty great. Um, Luke chapter 4 is where we're going to be this morning. Luke chapter 4. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he doesn't exist. Those are the memorable, infamous words of Kevin Spacey at the end of the classic movie, The Usual Suspects. In that movie, the cops are chasing a ruthless murderer that by the end of the movie, they've convinced themselves doesn't really exist because no one is as ruthless and evil as this guy is. Spoiler alert. The devil does exist in the movie and in real life. But if you tell too many people that in the wrong situations and in the wrong places, uh, that you believe that, you will be mocked, dismissed, uh, and, and uh, constantly kind of written off as unserious and backward. If you tell them you believe in angels and demons, then you'll show yourself to be a bit of a joke. In fact, there's a lot of people that will determine whether or not you are a, a, a rational enough person to listen to by whether or not you believe in those things. If you believe in angels and demons, well, then you are probably too backward and stupid to be listened to. So what are we to do as Christians? Are angels and demons real? What about demon possession? Isn't that just a relic of a bygone era, unsophisticated, lack of mental health awareness kind of era? Isn't that really kind of what we're talking about when we talk about demon possession in the Bible? Probably not real today, probably just people that didn't know how to read their their DSM and their medical reference volume to know what really is going on. We know better now, don't we? Well, if we jump to chapter 4 of the book of Luke, uh, picking up where we were at two weeks ago... Uh, Jesus has just made a huge announcement he 's just uh, come to his hometown, pronounced his ministry uh, is about to begin. He has declared that he is the Messiah and they 've been waiting on the, this this m- messiah that they 've been waiting on, and that this ministry isn 't just for the Jews but it was for everyone uh, and if you 'll remember that announcement was received so poorly that he just about got thrown off of a cliff for it today we 're going to see that in that, that Luke's audience doesn't, uh, w- what Luke talks about, and as he talks about this to his audience, what, what we're going to cover, doesn't seem all that outlandish to them. But if you were to say that you believe what happens in chapter 4 of the book of Luke today, uh, you might find yourself uh, metaphorically and figuratively being thrown off of a cliff today. So let's recall what Jesus says whenever he's back in his hometown of Nazareth, what we looked at, uh, last week, let's, or two weeks ago, let's, let's recall what he says, and then we'll pick up our story and see where Luke goes uh, from this place. So Luke chapter 4 verse 18, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So that was the message that Jesus proclaims in the synagogue. And what Luke's going to do with that, he's going to take the story that he's telling and he's going to go right to evidence that Jesus is doing exactly that. Exactly what he said he was going to do. Exactly what he borrows from the prophecy in Isaiah. And it says this is what Jesus is going to be all about. Luke is going to go right to the evidence to say, see, he's doing exactly what he said. He's going to proclaim good news and he's going to set the captives free. So let's just read, keep reading in, in verse 31 here of chapter 4. And let's see what happens here. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee. This is about 50 miles away from Nazareth. So we're talking, took him probably a few days to get there. And he was teaching them on the Sabbath. So back in a synagogue likely. Uh, but certainly he was, he was teaching again on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching for his word possessed authority. And they were all amazed and said to one another, what is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. So Jesus has left Nazareth, he's gone to a different town, and he takes up his ministry, kind of taking it on the road. And when he gets there, he immediately begins his pattern. He sets up shop, uh, this case in the synagogue, he's teaching. Even in his teaching, people are amazed, he's got power. Whatever he's saying is coming uh, across, and people are hearing and knowing what's going on. And and we're going to get to see kind of the first real confrontation. I mean, they about threw him off a cliff, which is a confrontation. But we're going to see in the midst of his teaching, the first time that, that Jesus has to deal with a confrontation in the middle of it. And we've seen Jesus tempted by Satan so far. We saw that in the beginning of chapter 4. We've seen Jesus tempted by Satan, but now we have demons in the mix. And right from the beginning, this demon has a pretty good idea of what he is up against. This whole interaction is kind of odd to me, honestly. It's a bit of a weird thing as it happens, because the demon interrupts Jesus as he's teaching. He just, Ha! like just kind of jumps in right in the middle of uh, of Jesus' teaching, but then he seems to kind of cower and, and back off. Have you come to destroy us? You're the Holy One of God. We know who you are. The whole scene is a little bit odd to me. Like what is the what is the objective of what this demon is trying to do through this guy? What is happening here? Which is I want to acknowledge kind of r- r- right off the top here. Whenever I say that like, this whole scene is odd, like it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Maybe you're not like me. Maybe all this seems normal. Maybe you read about demons in the Bible and people being thrown down and cast out. And you're like, yeah, that's cool. That just, that's just happens. Listen, when I read this, I don't care how much I read the Bible. The talk of demons feels less like a story from the gospel and more like something from the exorcist. Like it just doesn't like register with me. Like, whenever I'm hearing these stories, I'm like, I, what is going on here? This seems wild to me. It just, it just does. I feel like I should c- confess that to you up front as we study this passage. And I'll also tell you that I do not have a robust theology of demonology. Um, I just don't. I've never studied it a whole lot. It's not been an area of study for me. And I know I'm supposed to stand up here and be the guy that's got all the answers. And I'll tell you, I've read and I, and I have studied some. But I- I don't pretend to stand up here and tell you that I have all the answers when it comes to this stuff. I just haven't taken the time in my own personal study, uh, probably because I do find all of this so odd to me. Probably because I am a little bit like, what in the world? I just don't understand this. But I'll say this. In Luke's gospel, we're going to deal with demons 23 times, 14 times before we even get to chapter 10. So while I may not have spent a lot of time thinking or studying this aspect of the Bible, uh, I'd better get a lot more comfortable with it. And if you're going to be here at Providence, you're going to need to, too. Or if you're going to spend any time in the the Gospel of Luke, you will, too. And we're going to have to come to some uh, agreements this morning to kind of set the stage for the rest of Luke's Gospel. And I'll tell you, there are some things that I believed before the Bible told me they were true. I didn't need the Bible to tell me that they were true. I believed them before the Bible told me that they were true. There are some things that I believe that because the Bible told me they were true, and then my experience matched that, and I can say, yeah, I kind of already knew that because I had read it in the Bible, and the Bible told me that was the case. But there are some things I believe, and the only reason that I believe them is because the Bible says so. This fits in that category for me. I have no experience with demons. I'm not looking for an experience with demons. I, I, I don't have any cool stories to tell you about how this demon like, attacked somebody one time, and I was like, woof and it was gone. I don't have any like cool stories like that. I don't have any. I have no experience in this realm. But you need to know that that doesn't mean that it isn't real, and it doesn't mean that I don't believe that it's real. We'd do well to approach this topic with our enlightenment, medically diagnosed skepticism. We do really well to accept the reality that there is a physical world and there is a spiritual world and each is just as real as the other. And if we can't agree at least on that much whenever we talk about this topic, then we're going to be missing each other a lot over the course of the next year or so. C.S. Lewis writes it this way in one of my favorite books, The Screwtape Letters. He says this, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or magician with the same delight. That is a good warning to us that we can err on both sides of this. So let us not dismiss the reality of the work of the devil of the devil, and let us not see a devil behind every bush and every ailment. The scripture doesn't reflect either of those things. I have all kinds of questions and I assume as we go through this you will have all kinds of questions. I probably have many of the same questions that you do as we read through this and maybe as we go through this book some of them will be answered. But I know that none of us will be served to just dismiss this aspect of the Gospels that is very much real. And if you're like me, then you're probably still saying, yeah, but if it's so real, then why don't we run into this more often here in East Tennessee in our daily lives when we go to work and we do our thing? And maybe you do. Maybe that's a thing, and like you, like I, I'm just not aware of it within this congregation. But I'm guessing my assumption is that it's not like an everyday thing that we run up against. In my own kind of beginning reading on this, and as I've tried to sort through this, I found this quote to be very helpful and very convicting, and so I'll read this quote and I'll just let it land where it lands. Could it be that in the West, the presence of the demonic is muted, not because demons have ceased to exist or never were, but for the precise reason that no one fights against nothing? Perhaps as long as lukewarm faith exists, perhaps the demons need not be troubled nor trouble themselves. While the purpose of the Christian life is not to irritate demons and incur their wrath through spiritual attacks, a quasi-Christianity that is washed out and bears little resemblance to what is epitomized in the Acts of the Apostles, the Epistles, and demonstrated in the account of Jesus in the Gospels, is also bankrupt of holiness and power. It is probable that the lack of knowledge and experience of the presence of the demonic in modern times through to our current times, has made it easy to turn Christianity into a primarily cerebral, morality-infusing code for civilizing humanity, rather than the life-transforming, Satan-crushing, God-glorifying, powerful religion or lifestyle that it was intended. That stings. We'll let it land where it lands with you, but I I think that that this author, I think she may be on to something there. Maybe uh, maybe we don't see the presence of demons because demons are like, eh, we're good. Let them keep doing what they're doing. They're no threat to us. For now, what we can answer is that this demon knew what he was up against whenever Jesus started teaching in that synagogue. What's interesting is that Jesus cast this demon out, but the demon didn't say anything that was untrue. What he said about Jesus was, was true enough. The demon knows who Jesus is. But knowing who Jesus is, is not enough. This morning you may, may be here and you may have all kinds of information about Jesus. You may be able to rattle off all kinds of facts and you may surpass the greatest scholar in your knowledge of who Jesus is. But do not be lulled into a false sense of security. Information is not the same thing as transformation. What you must recognize is that what Luke wants us to see in this section of scripture is who Jesus is and then respond appropriately to that, which the demon has to. Look where Luke draws our attention to this casting out of the demon. I think this is interesting that this is where Luke chooses to land on this story. And they were all amazed and said to one another, what is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. And the reports about him went into every place in the surrounding region. What Luke wants us to see is that when Jesus comes, he comes in power. The people were astonished by the power that Jesus spoke with and the immediate obedience of the demons. This power was not something they were familiar with. This is not something that they had seen. Demon possession wasn't anything new to them like it it likely is to most of us. They had seen demon possession. They were familiar with it. They knew what was happening whenever this happened. They were used to that. What they weren't used to was the power of Jesus whenever he spoke. That is what got their attention. So let's keep reading this section, and then we'll come back and reflect on some of this here in just a minute. Luke goes on in verse 38. And he arose and left the synagogue, and he entered into Simon's house. This is Peter. and Simon's mother Now, Simon's mother-in-law was ill and with a high fever, and they appealed to, to, to him, that's to Jesus, on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now, when the sun was setting, all those who... Who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and told them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. That's a super interesting little point we're not even going to get to this morning, but we will get to why that seems to come up a lot in Luke's Gospel. And when it was day, he departed and went to a desolate place, and the people sought him and came to him and would have kept kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. So we have this section now where it's, It's Jesus doing all sorts of miracles. He's healing Peter's mother-in-law. He's rebuking a fever. He is doing it on a large scale with many different people. He's showing his power over illness and disease. He's showing his power over the demons that are at work in that area. And as Sabbath ends, people kind of start showing up because they can move now that Sabbath is over. The the Jews start showing up and and they start making their, their way to Jesus, almost overwhelming him is kind of the, the picture that we have here that it's just everywhere. They're, they're there all over the place and they don't want him to leave because of the work that he is doing. But he tells them that the kingdom of God demands he share the good news elsewhere and that he must keep moving. I almost broke up these two sections into two different sermons because there's so much that we could really meditate on in these passages, but I wanted to keep them together because I think Luke has them together for a reason. I think he puts them back to back for a reason for us, and I think what Luke is trying to to show us, and he's, he's trying to make one or two big points, which... It's where I think we're going to try to, where I'm going to try to land this morning as well. And Luke's telling, Jesus leaves Nazareth where he has made this bold proclamation citing Isaiah's prophecy that he was there to heal, to set the captives free, to bring the year of Jubilee, and that he is the one that needs to come and proclaim that message. So Luke gets right to to, to showing us that, that Jesus did exactly that. He goes from from saying this is what he was going to do to now walking over here uh, a few miles down the road and doing exactly what he said he was going to do. He backed up his talk. He wants to show Jesus is no snake oil salesman. He's not just a compelling teacher that has no action to back up his words. He's no charlatan seeking a crowd or a paycheck. He was exactly who he said he was. He was the Messiah, full of power, in his words, and in his actions. This talk of miracles and demon possession makes our modern uh, Western palms sweaty. It makes us very nervous. It seems so contrary to our world of scientific, verifiable, put-your-hands-on-it, evidence-based world. But these miracles serve to authenticate the messenger. They serve to authenticate that Jesus is what He says He is and that He can do what He says He can do. But that's not all that these miracles do. Listen, we're going to talk a lot about miracles and, like I said, demon possession over the course of the next, uh, the next year. We're going to talk a lot about it, but we've got to make sure that we're on the same page when we read these, okay? So I need you all to, 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 to join in with me, and I'm going to, if I may humbly do so, quote myself, ...from a sermon back in July where we talked about Elijah and Elisha and the miracles that they performed. So, uh, this is what I said. I said, you will often hear that miracles are used to kind of authenticate a messenger. That they are used by God and by a prophet or disciple or Jesus in this case to show the world that they are legit that only someone sent by God could do the things that they are doing. That is almost certainly a part of the role that miracles play, especially right here in the way that Luke is using them. For sure, that is a part of what is happening. But we greatly underestimate the purpose of these miracles if that's all that they do. You see, miracles are used to tell the story of the kingdom of God, to kind of give us a window into what God's kingdom is really like. So we went and we looked at the, 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 the raising of the, uh, the widow's son done by uh, Elijah. We talked about all of that that was happening there. And, and if you want to go back and listen to it, it's from July of last year, and we, we talked through a lot more of that stuff. But here's what I'm going to ask you uh, as we go through the book of Luke over the course of the next year. This is what I'm going to ask out of you. So you got to remember this. So you got to, you got to like make a, a, a mental note here, like brand this on your brain. Um, here's what I need. You ready? Miracles aren't something unnatural invading the natural. This is, the, this is a common definition of, of miracles. It's when something unnatural invades the natural of what is happening. So when, when something supernatural happens, that's a miracle. That's a bad definition of a miracle, all right? Miracles aren't something unnatural invading the natural. Miracles are God's working to restore what is what is. Natural to what is unnatural. So, so follow me here. Demons, sickness, physical disability, death—these are all results of a world broken by sin and the curse. All of these things are not as they should be, not as they were intended to be, not as God created them. Sin and sickness and and and, and physical disability and, uh, and 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 and. Uh, death, all of those things, we like to think that those are natural things because they are so common. But if you follow the storyline of Scripture, those are not natural things. Those are not how things were intended to be, right? Are you tracking with me on that? So those are unnatural things. Miracles are the restoring of the world back to what it should be. To what it is when it is fully under God's reign. It is the kingdom of God on display in a world broken by sin. It's how things should be in a world that is not as it should be. So can we kind of, like I said, just brand that on our brains. Every single time you see a miracle in the Bible, that is what should come into your mind. That is what you should think. Here's here's what you should think. Oh, so that is what it's supposed to be if sin hadn't wrecked it all, right? So that's, that's our quote for us every time. You, you following with me? Oh, so that's what it's supposed to be like if sin hadn't wrecked it all, every time we see a miracle. That's what it's supposed to be like. Oh, now I see. Oh, this is, this is the natural order, not death, When Lazarus comes out of that tomb, spoiler alert, whenever Lazarus comes out of that tomb, he's not doing something supernatural. He's restoring things to how they should be. Because death should not be. He's displaying his victory over all of these things. What Luke is doing here then is authenticating the person and the work of Jesus and introducing us to this idea that we'll spend a lot more time talking about. Not even going to talk about it this morning. We're probably going to have uh, a little more time than I, than I thought. I'm actually going a little bit faster than I thought. I guess I'm just preaching. But um, we'll talk a lot about the kingdom of God and how Luke uses that idea to, to teach us. But Luke is showing us what this kingdom will look like when Jesus fully reigns. Jesus talks about how he came to bring the kingdom of God. It's, we, we, we talk about it in, uh, in, in systematic theology as Jesus is inaugurating the kingdom of God here in this place. And so he's given us glimpses of what the kingdom of God should or does look like and how it should look among us. When Jesus takes his rightful throne and when he's showing us, and, and, and what he's showing us is that there's, there's no realm in which Jesus is not king. Physical, spiritual, they belong to him. Illness, demons, they don't stand a chance in the presence of Jesus. Demons and illness will and do bow at the word of Jesus to the astonishment of those that are watching him. I think we have this idea that there's this like cosmic unseen battle going on between Jesus and Satan, that it's this, this kind of like, like Rocky versus Apollo, like just getting after it, this, this like light side versus dark side, this giant power struggle. That's what's known as dualism. That is not a Christian view of what is happening in the Bible. There are not two kind of equal opposing forces against each other. Destined to battle until Jesus shows up in the book of Revelation and and finally squashes it all. That is not what is going on. Luke shows us that Jesus is fully in control. And all it takes is his word. Jesus is the unquestioned king here. And that's not just me talking. That's the demons talking. They're the ones that proclaim this. They say, are you going to destroy us? They're not mocking. They're not taunting Jesus. They're recognizing who they're talking to. That they have no chance should Jesus decide to invoke his power. No shot. Spiritually and physically, Jesus is king. Abraham Kuyper has a, a pretty famous quote that I love. He says, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. That is spiritually, the spiritual realm and the physical. And I could end there. I could end right there. That would be a great way for me to kind of put a bow on this sermon and just walk away. Like it's a great little quote kind of wrap it all up, but there's one more thing that I want us to see here, one more thing that I want us to look at that I think is so, it is so powerful and it is so beautiful and I am so grateful that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Luke put this little detail in here in verse 40. It says this, now when the sun was setting, all those who had, uh, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. Love this little detail. Again, the sun is setting, which means Sabbath is over. Which means so many Jews who were who are trying their best not to violate any of these massive Sabbath laws about work and everything else had st- stayed in their house and not done anything. Sabbath was over, so they're out and they're on the move and they are looking for Jesus. And they are they're almost certainly overwhelming Jesus as his popularity grows and grows. And they hear about his teaching in the synagogue and how he had cast out the demons. They were were amazed. They left the synagogue and they went home and the words started like going around. And so now you get to this end and they're overwhelming Jesus with people. Sick, demon possessed, all of them coming out there where Jesus is at. And with all of these people in front of him seeking healing or the casting out of a demon, I think we can all agree that if Jesus wanted to, if it were his desire, he could have had a mass casting out. And a mass healing, right? He could have just kind of waved his hand, spoke his word, and all would be well. And everyone would be, everyone would be better. All of these healings would have happened in an instant. Can we all agree that he has that power, that he's able to do that? It sure seems like his power is capable of that. He could just offer a big prayer, do whatever it is that he did whenever he healed people, and move on. But he didn't do that. this man with all this power went to every single person. He spent time with them. He touched them, even the diseased the ones that that no one wanted to touch the the, the unclean that maybe hadn't been touched in years or even decades, those that couldn't even be in the presence of the Pharisees or even show up at temple without being kicked out, those that couldn't be touched, couldn't be around, Jesus goes to everyone and he touches them. He cared for them. Individually. Because each one is a person, not a disease, not a demon, not whatever label had been put on them, not a group of unclean lepers who are cast out, they're people, they're individuals. And this king, this king is different than the other kings. Oh, for sure, this king has power. But his power is not put on display for the sake of just power being put on display. Instead, he chooses to use his power to care for his people. One by one. From whatever you are going through today, Jesus has not just given you some mass blessing and just kind of waved his hand over you in which you're just like, if I can just get under the wave of his hand, perhaps some of the pixie dust will fall over me. That is not how Jesus works. Whatever it is that you're dealing with, whatever it is that you're going through, however it is that you walked into this place, Jesus stands over you and he says, mine. But then he also comes to you, lays his hands on you, wraps his arms around you, and he says, this is what it's like in my kingdom. You have a home here. All will be well. Goodness, I love that. That means so much to me. Don't you love to know that Jesus is not just an, just an impersonal God sent to display all the power, but he is a personal God who comes and he, he goes to the outcast and he goes to the poor and he goes to the sick and he goes to those that have maybe never been touched, that aren't allowed to be touched, that are unclean, that aren't allowed to be there. And the holiest thing this world has ever known wraps his arms around them. And he says, you're mine. And that's you and me our salvation is not us getting in by the skin of our teeth because we manage to just like get in the right place and get blessed by Jesus in just the right way he came and he got us he wrapped his arms around us and he says you're mine and I'm never going to let go Come into this kingdom where I am the king, but a benevolent king like you've never known. This is the kingdom of God. And this is what Jesus does. And this is what we're going to see over and over and over and over again in this gospel. Almost every time Jesus heals someone, maybe every time, but almost every time, I guess here whenever, whenever Peter's mother-in-law is healed, he just rebukes the fever and it comes out, but almost every time, Jesus chooses to do it by laying his hands on them, by doing it individually. To the best of my knowledge, there's not like a mass thing that happens. He does it one on one. And so it is with us. what a king, one like this world has never known, power like this world has never known, and love and care like this world has never known. Let's pray. Father, this morning it is it is our confession, at least it is my confession, that I, I do not fully understand all of this demon stuff and everything that is going on there, but I It is also my confession that I fully believe you are the one who reigns in every realm, in every place. So Father, help me to live as though that is true. Help me to recognize that Jesus is indeed King. And that as such, it demands everything from me. Father, write these truths on our heart. And Father, we pray for the day when we can all know the truth of how it was meant to be. Not just the experience that we've lived out in this world of how it is. How it's broken. But we long for the day. When we know it is true. And we can experience it to be true. that you are king. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.